Welcome to Prompted by Nature, a weekly podcast that explores the connection between nature and creativity through storytelling. Each week, we'll dive into heartfelt conversations with the humans working in and with nature to support our planet and the creatures, including us, that inhabit it. Each conversation is punctuated by a meditation and writing prompt created by me, Helen, a meditation teacher, writer and outdoor creativity guide to help you to explore the issues and topics covered in a more meaningful and creative way. Because when we allow ourselves time and space to deeply listen and connect, we bring ourselves closer to a place in which we can truly live prompted by nature. by nature. I hope this one finds you happy and well wherever you are. Uh, it's the summer solstice and a new moon this weekend so I thought what better way to celebrate the magic of nature and the moon than uh, by releasing the conversation I had with the lovely Ginny Reddy back in mid-May. Ginny is an award-winning author and journalist, originally born in London to Indian parents who grew up in apartheid-era South Africa. She was brought up in Montreal, Canada and has a passion for writing about travel, nature and spirituality. She's been published in publications such as The Guardian, Time Magazine, The Times, Sunday Times Style, National Geographic Traveller and BBC Wildlife, to name just a few. Her first book, Wild Times, which I highly recommend, was published in 2016 and she's a contributor to the forthcoming Women on Nature anthology. Her book, Wonderland, which we discuss in the episode, is utterly beautiful and charts Ginny's search for the magical other through her travels around the UK. So a bit about the book from the blurb. Along the way, she tracks down ephemeral wild art, encounters women who worship the goddess, falls deeper in love with her birthland and struggles, but mostly fails, to get to grips with its law. Throughout the book, she rejoices in the wilderness we cannot see and celebrates the natural beauty we can. This is a book full of magic, and if you're feeling a bit disconnected from nature or that sense of the magical, I highly recommend this as a gentle nudge to get back into it and remind yourself that you and nature are both as magical as each other. Here's a section from the opening pages. What happens up the mountain doesn't always stay up the mountain. A few years ago, I went up a mountain in the Pyrenees with a tent, nine bottles of water and almost no food. I wasn't being naive or irresponsible, I simply wanted to commune with the wild in the raw. It's a custom that has been quite fashionable these days in certain circles, even though it's as old as the hills. It wasn't the first time I'd done something like this, so I welcomed the experience. I kind of had an idea of what I was in for, in the way that if you've ever fallen madly in love, you know what it will feel like, even though every time it's completely different. This kind of experience wasn't about challenging myself, no. It was about quietening down, going inward and listening. No special skill required, which is just as well because I didn't have any, other than the ability to enjoy my own company. It didn't feel strange or alarming to be spending four nights on the mountain with only two apples, a handful of nuts, no phone and no watch, and those nine bottles of water. Anyway, I needed the time out. 
I had a lot to get off my chest and I figured in the mountains I could cry my heart out. Up there, alone, on my first night though, after the sun had gone down, I heard a strange noise. It made my heart pound in a way that was nearly as frightening as the sound itself. That unearthly whisper on the other side of the canvas. Well, my brain couldn't make sense of it. The guide who'd walked me up here had called the mountain Hartzer Mendi, or Bear Mountain in English. He'd spoken of the Lord of the Forest, a strange creature, the love child of Basque myth and the Pyrenean wilds. But I hadn't actually expected to hear its voice, if that's what it was. It had come out of the dark, from nowhere. It was urgent and somehow sentient. It was punctuated by pregnant silences that made me hold my breath as a wave of fear flooded my body. What do you do when you're in a blind panic? Me? I reached for a charm that was stashed in the in the tent pocket and I began to rock back and forth. Under my breath, I muttered in a small, scared voice, I come in peace. For once, I was far too frightened to feel silly or self-conscious, my usual default setting. In this episode, we discuss her background and her inspiration for the book, what she means when she talks of the magic in the landscape, the concept of the magical other and how this relates to othering, Accessible nature and the need to shift the dialogue around visibility in green spaces. The importance of hearing a range of voices in nature writing. Following your intuition and the source of creativity. Writer's block and how she stays creative. The link between belonging and nature. Nature as an animate entity. The joy of being given the freedom to write the book you want to write. The link between travel writing and nature writing and what she would like to pass on. Before we get started with the conversation, we did have a few connection issues, which you'll hear in the episode. It doesn't detract from Ginny's words, but does explain if there are a couple of fuzzy bits. If you'd like to find out more about Ginny, you can find her on her website, www.ginnyreddy.co.uk and on Instagram at ginnyreddy20 and Twitter Ginny underscore ready. Ginny also offers mentoring and consultancy for writers, which you can find out more about via her website, www.ginnyready.co.uk forward slash forward slash work hyphen with hyphen me. As always, you can find me on my website, www.promptedbynature.co.uk or on the gram at prompted.by.nature. And if you like this or any other episode, please do leave a five-star review wherever you're listening to this or share with your circle via social media or in real life. I'm passionate about getting these words and voices out there, so anything you can do to share the podcast is always welcome. Remember to stick around until the end when I'll give you a little insight into the meditation and writing prompt that follows this episode. Enjoy the conversation and I'll speak to you after. moment um i'm an author and uh, uh, now occasional journalist and i've just written my first book wonderland about my search for magic in the landscape before that i wrote a book called wild times um, which was a kind of hybrid narrative guidebook um, to nature related experiences in the uk and uh, before that i was a travel writer um, I wrote travel and features for national newspapers and magazines, and 
before that, going back quite a way, I worked in book publishing. Um, about me personally, I was born in London, uh, in Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. And when I was seven, I moved to Canada with my family. We moved to the Laurentian Mountains um, in Quebec to a small rural village. Um, and my backyard was the wilderness. Gosh. So <laughs> that had a, quite a big impact on me, but I, I I'm only conscious of that now. And we lived there for two years and then, or about a year and a half. And then we moved to Montreal, or rather a suburb of Montreal. And uh, I had the St. Lawrence River at the end of my street. So I had more nature there. And then I grew up, I studied, I went to university in Montreal, I went to McGill. Um, and then I, I studied French and then I did an MA in English uh, literature in France after doing my BA in geography in Canada and worked in the UK and then went traveling for a while and and then things just kind of happened from there. Mm. Yeah, I was I was thinking when I was reading the book that um, I, I love that I love the fact that you have such a a broad range of experiences to draw on that aren't necessarily part of the narrative of the book as in you know they're not necessarily the things that you're doing in the book but they relate to kind of some past experience that you've had and I think that's what makes it such a almost like a colorful tapestry of a book mm. because that's, that's a lovely way of putting it mm. how did you how did you how did the idea for the book come about Okay, I think when I was a travel writer, um, I'd had opportunities to meet people from indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. And I was always struck by the way that for these people, it was perfectly natural to experience a reciprocal relationship with the forces of nature. Mm -hmm. So a deep communion. And I found this compelling and fascinating. And I wanted to know if it might be possible for a regular person like myself to experience, to get a glimpse of this kind of connection. Mm -hmm. So that was part of it. Mm -hmm. um, also, I've always been interested in magic and mysticism. They're healers in my family. So it's kind of in my DNA a little bit. Uh, and when I was in the Pyrenees, and um, this is the opening chapter of the book, mm -hmm. I had a kind of uncanny experience up on a mountaintop so that was part of it too. I was I wanted to 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 know more, to go a bit further, um, and to follow my curiosity. So really, the book is me following my curiosity and being given permission to do that in the way that I want to, wanted to do that mm. by my publisher, which I'm really grateful for. <laughs> I think it really does draw on, and I know when I was reading it, I felt like it really does draw on this innate. Um, or well, I feel that it's innate desire that we all have to experience that magic. And I know for myself, like when I've been to um, certain places, it, that, that has really hit me. And when you speak to other people, it's like, oh yeah, I felt that as well. And there's this real, um, it, it's almost like, I, I don't know, there's like a humanness about the desire for to feel that I, magic i think these things speak to our soul you know a very very deep part of ourselves mm. so i think that's why we have that feeling mm. and 
I think too often we hide that because we're worried about what people might think of us if we express these things. Um, so it's been really interesting to write these things down on paper uh, in a mainstream way, because there's a lot of, you know, very esoteric literature Yeah, to write about these things in the mainstream and to be receiving positive feedback about those very things. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think like when you say about the esoteric writings, like, you know, people that talk about land in that sort of way, it can feel quite exclusive. And one of the things that I wrote down when I was reading the book was this idea of gatekeeping and like how quite often with these sorts of experiences, it can feel like there's a gatekeeper. Like you have to, I mean, I know you do go and visit certain people and speak to certain people, but it's more about going to the actual place and exploring it for yourself. And I feel like so often it feels like the magic just doesn't happen to me. And if I go to these places, I don't, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't feel that. And it feels like there can be this, in order to feel the magic, we have to go and seek someone to show us the magic. Whereas actually we're, we're kind of capable of doing it ourselves, which I, I, yeah, I appreciated that part of it. Yeah. You don't have to be a shaman or medicine man or medicine woman. I mean, these people have incredible, you know, the genuine mm. shaman and the genuine medicine men and ge genuine medicine women have um, deep knowledge and insight that I can only, you know, imagine. Mm. Um, but I think we all, we all can enter into that space. There's no reason why we can't. And I mm. think too often, like you're saying, we feel we can't do this. We need, we need to go to a teacher or we need to go to a, a, a spiritual leader or whoever it might be a gatekeeper as you say mm. um so in a way i was kind of experimenting with doing this stuff you know in a diy way <laughs> can we have these can we generate these experiences ourselves or these type of experiences and of course i was only you know glimpsing things but mm. but it made made it very clear to me that yes we can with with a sincerity of intention I think it's it all boils down to that to commitment mm. to the sincerity of our intention to the desire you know the depth of our desire to experience the world in this way and our ability to stand still and listen deeply mm. and to observe signs and to acknowledge the unfolding of synchronicities mm. So I think all these things come into play. Can you remember the first time you ever felt that? That sense in, of magic and the, like you said, the synchronicities and just that kind of, um, I guess, awe maybe, or that sense of the sublime. Um, in terms of the book, uh, I think initially when I was up in the Pyrenees, I heard a very strange voice. Um, so there was nothing to do with synchronicity there, but it was, it was a voice coming from, I don't know what. And I felt, I felt terrified, but at the same time, I was aware that something unusual was happening outside of my normal field of perception. Um, so that had a really big impact on me. Um, and in terms of the book, elsewhere in the book, uh, 
I think there's a chapter uh, to do with my traveling to Iona. Yeah, and I think I think it takes a lot of commitment to get to Iona from <laughs> from London, where Ooh. I am anyway. Um, it's something like twelve hours, and that's a long journey, you know. And and so when I went to Iona, I was at at this point in the book when I was kind of wanting to put my money where my mouth was. And so I decided to fully surrender and to let and trust the spirit of the land to guide me. Mm-hmm. And it's not the same as just spontaneously saying, you know, I'm just going to go to Iona. I'm just going to rock up and see what happens. This was, this was something much more focused. I was explicitly setting an intention and asking the land to guide me to whatever it was I needed to see. And I was trusting that I would get a sign or a message. And when I was on the train on the way up there, uh, I think I was, I think I was in Glasgow waiting for the next train up to Oban. And I saw an email from an acquaintance and it's, uh, he was a man called Anthony and he's a landscape energies expert. And in his email, it was very cryptic. And he said something about um, the temple in the land. And he said, if you're going to Iona, look for this temple in the land and ask yourself in what dimension does this temple exist? Which I thought was extraordinary <laughs> to receive this email. Yeah. It's like something out of a, a book. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I received this email at this time and I thought, that's it. That's my sign. So I decided yeah. I was going to make finding this temple my mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got to the island, I think, you know, and it's an extraordinarily beautiful island, um, with a very special energy about it and i think i spent four days looking for this temple and when i asked the locals they either dismissed me or they acknowledged the existence of this temple in the land and i don't want to give away mm-hmm. what it is yeah, yeah or what it relates to um but um or they they would say yes we know of it but you won't be able to find it mm-hmm. so i met with a lot of resistance and then on the last day, I, I kind of gave up the idea of it after four days. I thought this isn't happening. This is, you know, I was, I, was, I was starting to feel a bit frustrated and impatient. And I thought, I'm on this beautiful island. I need to just, you know, uh, enjoy being on this island. Mm. Relish that. And then on the, so I let go. And then on the last day, I met this, I was in a cave. And I just happened to notice this woman who I'd, um, I recognized and I had met her a few years before and I went up to her and introduced myself and I told her what I was doing on the island and she said well let's see if we can find it together and so we set off from the cafe and almost like a minute after we left the cafe she bumped into a woman she hadn't seen for a year and we asked her where she was going and she said this temple would we want to come with her and I was just gobsmacked, mm. you know, my, my jaw just hung open. I thought that was extraordinary. Mm. It, to me, it, it, it felt like an incredible uh, message, a mm. sign. Mm. Uh, so that was, yeah, I would say that was quite significant. Mm. I think quite often, because I was thinking about... Um, why more people don't look for the magic in the land because I feel like I'm always doing that and like I'll take my kids out and we'll talk about the trees and 
And then I was thinking about, you know, why, why don't more people do this? Why don't more people go out and just in search of magic? And I was thinking about maybe just not knowing that it's even possible because I think so many of us, it's really easy to think, like I said before, I just don't ever feel magic in that way. I love nature and I love being outside, but I just don't ever, I just don't ever feel that. But actually when I look back in my life and I think, oh, actually I went to Machu Picchu and that happened. And I went to Avebury last year and that happened. And I think quite often maybe people do have the experience, but we, we don't always necessarily see it as magic. It's yeah. like, we don't always have the eyes to see. Mm. We're not always paying attention. Mm. Um, for some people, you know, some people might say, oh, that's just a coincidence. Yeah. But then yeah. you ask yourself, what is a coincidence? Mm. You know, the same way as what is imagination? What are, you know, what are these things? And I think some, for some people, you know, not everybody feels that pull. You know, I have always yeah. been interested in magic and I've always been interested in mysticism. Mm -hmm. And for people, for some people, that pull isn't there. The fascination is for something else. So I think you also have to be true to, to, to what you're drawn towards. Mm, definitely. So one of the things that comes up quite a lot of this, is this concept of the other. And mm -hmm. I love, I mean, I did philosophy at uni. I used to teach English literature for A-level. So we were often talking about the other. And I've always been fascinated by this concept of otherness with a capital O. And it, and it takes many different forms in the book, I feel. What, what was your kind of starting point for this concept of the other as you see it? Or otherness. So in terms of in terms of the landscape, I was thinking I would, you know, I, I say in the book, I'm seeking the magical other. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, those are words to uh, talk about things mm. that are not easy to define, like the spirit of the land and, you know, the sentient essence in all living things, the sentient forces of nature. Things, you know, the divine, even things we can't mm. see. Mm -hmm. But, 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 but are things that are on the periphery, mm. things that exist in a liminal space. And then I began to see there were parallels with my own feelings of mm -hmm. otherness. Um, given my multicultural background, you know, I was born mm -hmm. in Britain, raised in Canada. My mum and dad are Indian mm -hmm. and grew up in uh, apartheid era South Africa. So I began to see that there were these parallels between my own feelings of being on the periphery at times not feeling a sense of being accepted or not belonging and this magical other which is always kept on the periphery mm. you know if you're skeptical this it just doesn't exist you know yeah um and and by acknowledging this other in the landscape and writing about it and acknowledging my interest and being open about it i began to see that i could be open about my own feelings of being a feeling othered of, of mm. otherness um so it was kind of liberating in that way bringing these things out into the open into the mm. light of day mm. so i was sort of thinking about how we we other each other <laughs> that makes sense and it's very easy to feel like we are an other and i i was thinking when i was reading the book in terms of this acceptance of 
the fact that there is an other, whether it be a magical other or whether it be the fact that there's diversity in society and we're all very, very mm. different and we all have very, very different backgrounds. And actually, when we become aware of the other in the sense of landscape and nature and recognizing that other does not mean bad, other just means literally other, that kind of brings us closer to a point of sameness. Does that make any sense at all? I, I, I felt like there was some kind of link between what we do to nature and what we do to people. There is a link because we are an aspect of nature mm. in a way. We're the human aspect of nature. But I think um, we have stopped seeing ourselves as part of a, this, as Thomas Berry would call this symphony of species. And I think there is something in what you're, you know, there's definitely something in what you're saying in that if we acknowledge the other in nature, if we acknowledge the sacredness of nature, we can begin to see the sacredness in everybody else and the specialness in everybody else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then act on it and see our connections, see yeah. what's, what's, what we have in common too. Because I think it goes along with like you talk about kind of the church and this idea of um, a lot that happened, you know, like here, for example, with the church, things were sort of pushed out and the connection with the land was was pushed out. I feel like and this like this fear of otherness, this fear of nature as being sacred, because for so long, what was instilled in us was nature is not where you find the sacred the sacred is found in this house with this person talking to you and reading this book or whatever and that creates a fear of nature as other in the sense that you're talking about it and then perhaps we become scared of any kind of other because it's that safety mm -hmm. in you know you're safe here you're not safe out there you're safe with these people you're not safe out there with those people and I felt like when you were speaking out about feeling othered and then what you were saying about you know, not feeling quite comfortable in the church and all things like that, I feel like they, there's like a connection there. It's like it all kind of merges to the same origin or point. Yeah, I mean, it's all a kind of othering, mm. whether it's nature, whether it's people. Yeah. I also think that if you are somebody who's willing to see the sacred in nature, you're more will you're more likely to see the sacred in everything, mm. including humans and all their diversity and all their differences. I, I think quite often nature in the sense of like people going out and going for a walk or writing books on nature they're written by a certain set of people could be mm -hmm. and in your book you're talking about things that don't necessarily come up all the time in in quote-unquote nature books you know the social side of of nature natural spaces and the the things that can arise out of that people reading the book might it might be like an unexpected oh oh i didn't even realize that was a thing you know it, when you go into a space where you, mm. you always feel welcome so you don't ever think about it 
Mm. A friend of mine uh, read the book um, and she told me reading those passages made her a little bit uncomfortable because you know, she'd ha- he, she'd never been received in that way. She mm. never had that experience. Um, so while it's not central to the book, it is important because it's, um, you know, because it comes up for me mm. when I go into the countryside. Um, it comes up for me, you know, when I travel generally. Um, you know, I'm always wondering at the back of my mind, how will I be received? Uh, you know, even if I'm, I'm really looking forward to going somewhere, and that's not just in the UK, that's, that's really anywhere. Mm. There's a, there's a part of me thinking, how will I be received? How will I be received? Um, and I think that may be common to many people who mm-hmm. um, are visibly different. Mm-hmm. It may be how many people feel, but I think if you are, you know, if you are black or Asian or visibly uh, visible minority, ethnic minority, mm-hmm. uh, your your skin color kind of precedes you yeah. in a way. Yeah. If you yeah. walk into a space, you know, you can't hide that. This, mm-hmm. you know, so in a way, you're not a you know you know you're not a victim, but you're you're defenseless. You know, mm. you can't do anything about the color of your skin. You know, if you if you if you're from you know if you if you don't have a local accent, well, you can hide that in a way, but you, you just mm-hmm. don't open your mouth. You know, skin colors. It's not an easy thing to talk about because. You know, I'm not a victim in any way. I don't feel like that. And I talk about that in, in the book as well. Yeah. But at the same time, I have to be true to my lived experience. I, I think that's what makes the book stand out, is that it is, it's not just about the magic in the landscape and going to lots of different places. It is about a lived experience. And that's, I think, what's the most important thing in terms of... Because, like you say, it may not be central to the book and it's and it's not central to the book but i think it will open the eyes of people who have not thought about it before so even in that sense because i think a lot of it connects back to this idea of snobbery in outdoor spaces and this idea that and and it happens in the yoga world as well you know you can be in this space that's interesting and and you can't your body fits this space and yours doesn't. Your face fits, fits this space and yours doesn't. And I feel like um, so many people talk about wanting things to be, you know, united and everyone to be one and da 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 da, but they don't behave as if that's what they want. These yeah. boundaries are created. And I think unless we speak about it, however it comes out, nothing will ever change people won't even realize and i feel like go on sorry i think i think people um bring their unconscious biases with them Mm. into the room Mm. and i think uh you know until people become aware that they are carrying those unconscious biases Mm. that these kinds of issues will continue to come up Mm. it's this idea that um about not feeling feeling welcome in natural spaces. And that's why um, often people won't go into a space that they don't feel welcome in. So the reason that you don't often see um, black or brown in certain spaces is because they don't feel welcome. So it's like, well, if if I don't feel welcome, I'm not gonna go there. 
that in order for that to change, it kind of, it has to be spoken about. Mm. Um, I know that uh, having been a travel writer and traveled to over something like 60 countries mm. um, for work purposes and also for myself, um, going into the countryside for me was not a big deal. Mm -hmm. It was just another kind of travel course. So, um, um, so I think we also have to be really wary of not kind of perpetuating these tropes. Um, there, there are these tropes, you know, that if you are black or Asian, therefore you don't feel comfortable in nature. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I find that quite frustrating as well, because I think it's not just about race, it's about socioeconomic background. Yeah. Um, you know, some people can't afford the trainers, the, the walking boots mm. to go in, go into nature. Some people don't have access. They don't have vehicles. Um, they don't, can't afford train fares. Um, so I think there are a whole host of factors um, that have to be considered altogether. Um, but yeah, the, the issue of visibility in the countryside, I mean... You know, I don't know anybody who's black or Asian who isn't, even if they're not talking about it openly, who isn't aware of that mm. Um, mm. when they go for a hike. But I, ha but I have to say, that is very much a part of my normal. You know, that's, mm. so, that's very deeply ingrained in me. I, I grew up with that. I mm. came into the world with that. So I don't, I don't get on a train and go somewhere and feel cowed. Mm. I don't assume I'm going to have a negative experience. I, you know, I'm quite a positive person. So when I go somewhere, I assume I'm going to have a positive experience. Mm. I'm not looking for slights. No, of course. You know, so I think, I think it, it you know, it depends on the individual as well. People are different. Mm. But until we have a range of voices speaking out about these things, we might only hear from one kind of one voice. Mm one or two voices as opposed to multiplicity of voices. Yeah, and re representative of the society in which we live, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about was um, following your nose. You often talk about following your nose and just kind of having faith that the landscape will take you where you need to go. And I was thinking about this in terms of like, almost like you're listening with this faith that there will be something to hear. And I wondered what, how that came about for you, how you... Uh, I think I've always felt that. Mm -hmm. I've always been intuitive. I've always been open to my intuition. So I think with the book, it was a case of honing those things mm -hmm. and being more focused about it but I think on some level I've always done that I've always traveled that way I've always adventured that way I've always explored that way um, and following my nose means following which whichever way my heart feels pulled mm. even if it's just like the slightest sensation mm. Um, sometimes I'm more conscious of it and sometimes I'm less conscious of it. Um, yeah. And the podcast is kind of, a, well, it is about the link between nature and creativity. 
do you feel that there's a link between nature and creativity and your own creativity? Because your writing is beautiful and the way that you paint your pictures in your book is really evocative. Well, I do think creativity is as much about a listening and a receiving mm -hmm. as it is an actual sitting down and doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote this book called mm -hmm. Big Magic and and she talks about how, you know, the ideas out there waiting mm -hmm. to be cap waiting to be captured. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I kind of believe that things come through us if we allow them to. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when the interesting stuff happens, whatever, you know, whether you're an artist or a writer or a musician. Mm. And where do you, where do you feel the most creative? Is there a face? Well, that's a really, that's a, that's a really big question. Um, <laughs> you know, in the middle of the night, I might get an idea and I'll, I have a pen and pad beside my, my, my bed and I'll scribble it down and it might become the seed of something mm -hmm. or I'll be walking and, and, and just there'll be a spark of a thing and I'll note it and I'll write it down and that might become the seed of something. Um, and then sometimes when I'm writing and there's a lot of rewriting involved in writing, you know, writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And sometimes in the rewriting, something will come up. Um, but I don't think it's, I don't think of it as a conscious process, at least it isn't for me. Um, mm. But I do know that in order to, to write and in order to feel creative, I need to spend time outdoors. I can't do one without the other. <laughs> mm. uh, and if I'm stuck, I will go for a walk. I mean, I know a lot of people do that. Uh, or I'll have a nap. You know, I'm much more creative once I've had a nap. Mm -hmm. so it's like a different part of my brain is activated. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, I'm in a different space. Mm. So... I, I can't give a pat answer because I'm not really conscious of these things. You know, a lot of the time they just, they just kind of, maybe because I've been doing it for a long time mm, and yeah. know, I were to stop and think and break it down. Mm. But I do think, but I do think, you know, from a, from a young age, I wanted to be a writer. It wasn't something that came to me later. I've always, I just, you know, came into the world wanting to be a writer. Um, so that's the one thing that I feel comes most naturally to me mm -hmm. and not something that I, of course, there's a writing and the rewriting and the rewriting, but in other areas, when it comes to painting, for instance, you know, I have to deal with a lot of doubt and a lot of, uh, with this stick that says, you know, you, you're not a painter, you can't paint. <laughs> so how, how do I get beyond that? You know? <laughs> Um, do you ever experience writer's block? Um, yes, yes, I do. Um, and I think the easiest way to get through writer's block for me anyway, is just to write any old thing to write rubbish. Yeah. And then you kind of write yourself into something. You take mm -hmm. your mind off it, mm. you take your mind off the fact that you're blocked. And so your attention is on something else. And by doing that, you unblock something. Mm. so it's like um not talking about writing at all but i have this way of getting rid of headaches i'll sit i'll sit or i'll lie down 
and I'll really go into where the pain is. Like I'll really focus on the pain. I'll go right into it. I don't know how I'm going into it. What part of me is going into it? Some part of my consciousness is going into the pain so that there's no separation between me and the pain. Mm -hmm. And I stay with it. I stay with it and I stay with it and I stay with it as something to do with acknowledging or allowing myself to feel it fully makes it dissolve. Mm. Um, and it's the same thing with trying to fall asleep. If I can't fall asleep, I go to whatever it is physically, because there's always something physical that might be stopping me from sleeping. And I go to whatever that thing is and I stay with it and I stay with it and I stay with it. And then I fall asleep. Um, so yeah, I don't really know what that has to do with creativity, but... Well, I was just thinking, when you were speaking, I was just thinking about <laughs> how, you know, like you were saying about you go into the pain. I think so many of us are taught to run away from pain and to move yes. away from pain and not, and not go in, like you say, go in it and then move through it. And I think there's something there about... Um... Ah, ah, so, so going back <laughs> to creativity and writing, yeah. Yeah. so a lot of it has to do with truth right? Expressing uh -huh. your truth on the page. Mm. Um, so it's a kind of similar thing in that you have to allow yourself to feel what's true mm. for you authentically, not what you think is meant to be pretty on the page and then transmit that on the page. Mm. So for me, that's the creative, creative process. You, I'm transmitting the energy of what I'm feeling and encapsulating that in words. Mm. Um, so that when you're reading, it's a transmission of energy or that's, you know, that's the goal anyway. So I think there's a lot to be said to speaking your truth and really being clear about what your truth is, because there's a great power in truth. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of us run from. Sometimes we don't, we, we can't um, get to that point because we don't want to know what the truth is. We don't want to know what the pain is, like you said, with the headache. So we run away from the headache. Um, and I think so much about creativity and also moving into natural spaces, getting yourself uncomfortable. It's like in the book when you, when you keep meeting a dead end, it's like, well, this doesn't feel right. And it's not what I expected, but just to keep mm -hmm. going, like you said on Iona, exactly. you just kept going. Because so many people having the experience that you had would have just gone home. And I think that search for magic sometimes requires moving through pain moving through discomfort um mm -hmm. it's almost like a rite of passage yeah we have a lot of uh distractions yeah that stop yeah. us mm. um, and we're also propelled by our underlying belief systems mm. too and i suppose if I think it goes back to what we were saying. Some people are very, very used to feeling uncomfortable and some people aren't. And more often than not, the people that aren't used to feeling uncomfortable are the ones that have never been challenged in any way. And that's why they feel uncomfortable. Or they often never had to be, they've mm. never been challenged. Yeah, like you're saying, they've never been challenged. They've never had to leave their, uh, their comfort zone, uh, their bubble. Uh, yes. And I wonder if, there's a link between coming kind of back to this, this thing of um, 
how we treat nature is how we treat well ourselves essentially um is that if we're in our bubble we don't have to think about nature as being something that could be magical like you said about the whole the idea of it being a mainstream mainstream writing about quite an esoteric subject mm, yes and trying to make it accessible yeah you're you're you know if people are, are, are going to read the book it's this idea of just saying if you look it's here and it doesn't have to be like i wrote down um mystical i think yeah mystical doesn't have to be mystifying which you wrote i've written down that? yeah here we are of course, not all shamans were the real deal. I'd met a few in the UK who seemed to suffer from an excess of self-importance, uh, who used vague language and talked in riddles about their cer special ceremonies. Mystical didn't have to mean mystifying. Mm. And I think the bubble... There's a kind of, there's a kind of theater around that too. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the bubble will always be there if... It's almost like the bubble is meant to be there because then other people can say, I know more than you do and you don't have access to this space because you're in your bubble and you're not special enough. Um, and, and I love, I think that's what I love about your book is that not saying, not, not to say you're not special, but it's like this idea of if you go out with that, with that desire to find something magical, it's there and you don't have to have any special training and you don't have to be anyone with any, you know particular background it's just it's there for all of us and i think what we focus on manifests as well i always say it's like tuning into you know it's like a radio station and you're you're turning the dial yeah until you get to radio radio magic which sounds incredibly cheesy <laughs> but it's that kind of thing it's all there it's all around it's just you have to expand your field of perception mm. you have to be aware that mm. it even exists you have to be aware that something exists to, to see it. Because I was also thinking about this idea of belonging. Because you talk about belonging, like how um, feeling connected with the land, but also feeling like you don't belong. And I was thinking about how it's humans, this, the concept of belonging is actually a human thing. Well, I've always you know, felt I belong to the land, the mm. land. I have, yeah. you know, I've never felt un uncomfortable in nature. My relationship with nature is between me and the nature around me. It's, it's yeah. not for any, anyone else. It's, you know, yeah. everybody has their own relationship and nobody can judge that. Um, the belonging or not belonging has to do with the perceptions of people uh, yeah. I might encounter mm. and what they project onto me. And also, you know, you know, I was born here, grew up in Canada. My mum and dad are Indian from South Africa. So all that comes into it too, you know. I just I wasn't born in one place and I didn't grow up in one place with all my ancestors in one place. So there is that that question that arises of, of belonging based on my background too. And for anybody who comes from a multicultural background. And I think that's why access to nature is so important and land. Because like you say... You belong to the land, I belong to the land, we all belong to the land. Our feet treading on was the land that we found, you know, that's just where we were and, and the rhythms would have been different and the cycles, you know, maybe there wasn't a seasonal cycle at all. And I, I, I really got that sense in the book of, it's about bringing ourselves back to 
that connection with the land, which means there is no concept of you don't belong here, you don't belong here. Because if we feel that connection with the land, if we, if we are willing to access that magic of landscape, all of the rest of it, I mean, this is utopian dream, kind of falls to the wayside because it's, it's because so many people I think talk about ancestry and that where their roots are and da da da, mm. but it's like, but a lot of people that are talking about that haven't been displaced in some way. So they have that like accepted connection with wherever they are, but actually the land doesn't care, mm. you know? And also because I have this belief that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a sentiment, sentient animate nature this aspect of beyond the physical appearance of the nature around us um it means i i often don't feel alone you know mm. if i'm if i'm out in in nature or in the land i feel i don't feel like i'm alone i feel like there are allies mm -hmm. around yeah um, so i think that's another aspect i think if you if you have those beliefs yeah it's comforting yeah. But it's the same as anybody who believes in the divine, you know, whether it's in the landscape or not in the landscape, you're still believing in a higher power. Mm. But yes, I think, I think if anybody struggles to, with a sense of belonging, they need to spend time in out nature. Mm. <laughs> All of these things actually come up in this piece I'm writing. Some of these things. Yeah. Very hard to distill it down into one piece. But I think, I think the thing is also that I'm number one, there's the issue of the race and identity and all of that. And the fact that I have a multicultural background. So that's one side of it. The other side is to do with the book, not being a traditional nature narrative. Mm -hmm. It's within genre. It's kind of like, where does this fit? You know? And, you know, I think for many nature writers, I'm not a nature writer for many travel writers. So for many nature writers, I'm not a nature writer. I'm a travel writer. For many mm -hmm. travel writers, I'm not a travel writer. I'm a nature writer. For my friends who I would describe as being eco-spiritual, you know, they would say, oh, uh, you know, if they thought about it at all, they'd say I'm somebody who writes about spiritual things. Okay. Um, so, all these, so all these different things yeah. <laughs> kind of intersecting. Um, and the nuances are important. Um, and so, but it's very hard when there are different kinds of nuances. Yeah, and I think so often we skirt over the nuances because it's like, let's just, you know, put everything in a package and we can define them in that way. And I think that's why when, when we're talking about anything nuanced, it can get really convoluted because I think perhaps we're not necessarily as well rehearsed speaking about nuances mm -hmm. because they're so like this and we're trying to do this and it's like can't do that you know oh, yeah. putting my hands out and then putting my hands in <laughs> I feel like I was thinking about wild times because I was I was having a look mm -hmm. in it and I was thinking about wonderland and I was thinking about the connection between the two and I was oh. thinking I feel like wonderland is like the big sister of wild times in the sense of it's almost what wild times nearly is. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean because um, originally I wanted wild times to be a wonderland kind of book. I wanted mm. it to be wonderland, I guess. Um, and I mean, 
the idea came up in a conversation with somebody who was a fellow travel writer who happened to be the managing director of a publisher. And I was telling him about some of the things I'd done. Um, I I was telling him about the things, some of the experiences I'd had. And he said, this would be really interesting for a book. And I had the idea of a narrative. Um, and, and this was a guidebook publisher and they said, no, we don't, you know, we don't want to, it to be a narrative. We want it to be this guidebook. So you know, I had a choice to make. And mm. at the time I chose to go with it. And so that's why it's quite unusual for a, for a, for a guidebook. It's, it's kind of narrative stroke guidebook. And I was trying to express kind of covertly, I guess. Yeah some of the things that I would have liked to put into a narrative, but you know, there's such a thing as divine timing and that book, that book won an award. And I think the reason it won an award is because it wasn't your, your usual uh, guidebook. It was a little bit different. I think there was one chapter called wild medicine and it's actually about uh, journeying with a dad with dandelions, you know, in a, (laughs) in a kind of plant medicine way, a very spiritual plant oh, medicine. Was, was that the one with Nathaniel? That's right. Yeah, because yeah. I said, oh, I did. And, then I was... <laughs> and funnily enough, that was the one chapter that the editor um, did not touch. Oh, wow. And the reason they didn't touch it, I think, is because it was just too esoteric and they didn't want to even go there. Mm. So they <laughs> yeah, left over it. Yeah. It's funny you said about how it's kind of what you wanted Wonderland to be, but it, you know, divine timing and, and that sort of well, thing. It's what I wanted. It's what I wanted wild times to be. Sorry. Yeah. Wild times. yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Because I was almost thinking like, I feel like someone misunderstood what wild times were supposed to be. Not in a hor- not in a bad way, but it's because I went traveling for a bit after uni, like lots of people do. And I was thinking, God, if I'd have had something like wild times, it, I think there aren't any guidebooks which only talk about, well, like it says, extraordinary experiences connecting with nature. I don't think there are any. And, and even, you know, I can, I can pick it up. I've, got, I've marked loads of the pages of the places that I want to go because, I mean, I have two kids. I'm never going anywhere at the moment. But <laughs> when I does get to the point where I can go somewhere by myself, oh, I want to go there or there. And like, yeah, I feel like it's, it's a really lovely, I feel like Wonderland, Wonderland is a really lovely follow-on from it because it is so much more of a, I know you bring your personal experiences into wild times, but it feels like it's much, yeah, more sparkly and magical way of. Yeah. And I, and what I loved, I mean, I mean, what I'm so grateful for with my, my publisher uh, this time, Bloomsbury, um, is that I'm writing it for the nature writing imprint. Mm. And I was, I was concerned, like, what are they going to think of this? It's so, it's so much more esoteric than the, mm. the, the usual titles. And I was worried the whole time I was writing it. But, you know, my publisher really liked it from the start. You know, he sent me a text and he said, for a DM, I think he said, he said, I love it. And it was, it was just, it was an incredible relief. But also he, he you know, he gave me the freedom to do that. You know, and that's not a small thing. That's a really big thing to give you the freedom to express yourself without yeah. Uh, tempering it. Yeah. And I think in some respects, 
the fact that you don't know all the names of the birds and you don't know all the names of the trees but you still draw out this I know we keep using the word magical but that's what it is I think sometimes that's what we need is like you don't have to know all the words this doesn't have to be intimidating but there's a pulse and I think it's very um of the time I think we need magic at the moment I think we need a bit of something special that is going to take us out of our houses and there is that hopefully hopefully going to let's say prompt people to want to help more with everything that we're going through as a species at the moment is if someone who isn't a nature writer and isn't a travel writer and doesn't know all the names of the trees can feel this connection or maybe I can as well because I I really like the sound of that bird outside my window but I don't know its name um I'm sure I'm sure the bird doesn't know its name either actually you've gotten to a point I was going to say because actually (laughs) I've been thinking about this for like a tree doesn't know that's its name and I think so like so much of this ties together in we as humans we want to define things we want to give things names because maybe it helps us to maybe make sense of it but also it's like an ownership thing of you know ownership but also but also i asked a naturalist this i I said you know why is it so important to name everything Mm. and for him he said it's it's a way of um creating relationship with something you name it you Mm. know it so i can i can see that we 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 humans have names true um um so i can see that 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 side of things that point of view but i think we go wrong i think the reason why more people don't connect with nature is because this focus on on species single species and their names and identifying them and observing whereas we're part of an entire ecosystem all of us humans and um the rest of nature and we we don't look at things in a holistic way enough. Mm. I would recommend an anthology called Spiritual Ecology. A spiritual Ecology. Okay. Right. And it came, it came out in 2013. So I think it's maybe a little bit, it was a little bit before its time, I mm. guess. Um, but it's, I think it's, you know, it's a book people need to be reading now. Mm. And there's an essay by Thomas Berry. who was a very influential figure in, earth-based spirituality and he has an essay in there and I think you would really like that essay cool I'll read it thank you I think that um we're at a point where like this is the right time for a book like Wonderland I think yeah yeah I do yeah I think the challenge is many bookshops are closed (laughs) in fact (laughs) all of them across the land Um, so you know doing things like this zoom talks and the support of online books uh, booksellers who are able to operate online really makes a difference Mm, definitely um okay so the one thing that i really like to ask people is what would you like to pass on that you've learned i would say value your intuition and allow for the possibility of magic because when you do life becomes really interesting (laughs) so before we go how can people get hold of you how can they get hold of the book how can they find out more okay so i'm on twitter at ginny underscore ready and that is spelt 
J-I-N-I underscore R-E-D-D-Y. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at Ginny Ready 20, J-I-N-I-R-E-D-D-Y 20. I have a website, www.ginnyready.co.uk. And if you look at any of these links, any of these, you will see uh, the independent booksellers who've been supporting Wonderland and who I'm trying to support by sending people in their direction. Um, you can also order it um, direct from my publisher, um, Bloomsbury. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I really no, appreciate thank you. you agreeing to come on. And yeah, it's been really lovely speaking to you. And I really appreciate your engaging so deeply with the book. Oh, for, yeah, I mean, it's a real honor when somebody does that. And, and for asking such interesting and, and talking about things in such an interesting and deep way and not a surface way. You know, that's oh. really interesting for me too. How good. So. Oh my goodness, I loved that conversation. Magic, creativity and nature, what's not to love? I really hope you enjoyed hearing from Ginny and that you can get your hands on a copy of her book, Wonderland. In the meditation and writing prompt that follows this episode, we'll be looking at ways you can find the magic in the landscape on your doorstep using a walking meditation. As always, I'm sending you lots of love, dear friend. Happy writing and I'll speak to you soon.